chapter. Um, so a quick plug here, I've got a book coming out in November. I'll be telling you about that again soon. Uh, um, um, so I just thought I might pitch um, a, a series to the TV, right? And I just wanted to ru run the premise past you. So it's quite gritty. So pin back your ears. So we start with a, a young heroine, TJ. She's lost two husbands. Now, it reminded me of, um, there's a, a quote in um, The Importance of Being Earnest that Lady Bracknell says. It says, to lose one parent, Mr. Worthing, could be regarded as a misfortune. To lose two looks like carelessness. So having carelessly lost two husbands, um, uh, both of them sons of the, most local, the local most powerful MP, uh, whose name is Jude J Jacobson, um, <clears throat> she's sent back home to her family in order to wait for the third son to grow up so that she can marry him. Now, this is not as odd as it seems because um, in this country, um, women can be betrothed from a very young age, three, um, and men, um, they have to wait until they're 13. So she would still be quite young. She's still quite young, and she's quite happy, well, not quite happy, but she goes back to her father's house as a widow to wait for the third son to grow up. So son number three, Shla, celebrates his bar mitzvah. Um, we haven't got, uh, oh yeah, we have got there, yeah, that's right. He celebrates his uh, bar mitzvah. Um, and so our heroine, TJ, is waiting for her wedding day. But Jude the powerful MP, is not sure that she wasn't responsible for the death of his first two sons, and he doesn't want to lose the third one. So he conveniently forgets about her, tucked away in her father's house as she is. Oh, no. What does our heroine do? Does she stay in her father's house like the good daughter-in-law she should be? No, she doesn't. She puts on her basque and her fishnets, dons her stilettos and her thong, and goes out and waits, waits on the street for her powerful father-in-law, Jude Jacobson, to walk past on his way to work. He has just recovered from the grief of losing his wife. Right, he's recovered, but you know, he's still a bit tender. Maybe he's a bit drunk. He's a bit randy. He sees his streetwalker and he picks her up. But she's, she's quite savvy. And she says, come on, give me the cash first. Don't trust you. He says, love, I haven't got any cash on me. I'll tell you what, he said, I'll give you a pledge. What do you want for a pledge? So she says, I'll have your passport in its nice leather case and your driving license. So he says, okay, bit foolish in this day and age, isn't it? Bit foolish, passport and driving license here. You can have it as a pledge. That will prove that I'm going to send the cash to you. Okay. So off they go. Where do they go? Who knows? Maybe a local inn, maybe behind a convenient rock somewhere, but off they go and they do the deed. Jude goes back to work and he's either too busy or more likely too embarrassed to go and uh, take the cash to this girl. So he sends his PA and he's generous, so he sends a tip as well. But the street walker's nowhere to be found. The PA goes and asks around, and he gets embarrassed because all the people around saying, 
What are you doing? This is a nice neighborhood. What do you think? We don't have street walkers here. If you want that, you go the red light district, the other end of town. So he goes back with his tail between his legs and tells Jude Jacobson this woman is nowhere to be found. So rather than make a big fuss, because, you know, he's quite an important man and it's, you know, he wants to keep his street cred. He doesn't want to be embarrassed among his peers. He says, let it go. I'll suck it up. Um, I'll just have to manage without. That's end of episode one. Episode two. Meanwhile, TJ has fallen pregnant in that brief encounter. Jude hears of it. He accuses her of prostitution, no doubt seeing an easy way to rid himself of this inconvenient woman whose husbands always die. So he demands the death penalty. So, she says, you're going to kill me, are you, for sleeping with someone? Well, what about the guy? Takes two to tango, you know. I can prove who it was here. And she holds up the passport in its nice leather case and the driving license. Whoever be these belong to, he's the father of my child. And Duke Jacobson throws up his hands and says, it's a fair cop, Gov. It was me. She's in the right. I'm in the wrong. What do you think? It's nice and seedy and gritty, isn't it? I'm going to call it Middle East Enders. Okay, <laughs> the thing that I, I came down to at the end of that is, you know, <laughs> things were as bad then as they are now, really. But at the end of that, Judah says, she is more righteous than I. So why is she considered righteous with what she did? She tricked her father-in-law to sleeping with her. So we, we look at Judah first. So he's the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. He's the leader of his own tribe, and actually his tribe eventually becomes the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. The kingdom uh, splits into two, and Judah is the southern half, and Israel is the northern half. They do eventually come back together again. So he's, he's quite an important figure. Um, when the sons of Jacob wanted to, to um, kill Joseph, their brother, Judah was the one who said, let's not do that. Uh, I think we've got another slide coming up, haven't we? Side two. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's a bit small. It's um, Genesis 37:26. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. So in his youth, he's certainly a man who has an eye to profit. But also, he doesn't want his brother's blood on his hands. So, uh, you know, he just, he, he just wants to keep himself clean, which could be a good thing. <laughs> um, it could be just self-preservation. I'm not sure. Also, he went off almost straight after and married a Canaanite woman, which was really not a good thing for him to do. But he did it. He left his family and went to marry a Canaanite woman, sure. He was a bit of a rebel, really. Age does teach him wisdom. 
because when Joseph, much later on, is uh, ruling Egypt um, and wants to keep hold of his brother Benjamin, um, Judah's answer to him is all that it, everything that it should be, and you can read that in Genesis 44, 18 to 30. I haven't put it up there at the moment, but you can, um, you can read that in the Bible. But I've got no doubt that this episode with Tamar was part of his journey to greater wisdom. So in Genesis 38, we start off with Tamar marrying Judah's firstborn son, Ur. Ur does evil in the sight of the Lord. We aren't told how, and God puts him to death. This would be a huge blow for Tamar because as the majority of the inheritance passes to the firstborn son, and in losing her husband, she's lost both her means of support and the possibility of producing more heirs. When this happened, um, despite the law in Deuteronomy, you may remember in Deuteronomy the law says that a father-in-law may not marry his daughter-in-law and a brother-in-law may not marry his brother's wife. He may not mar marry his sister-in-law. Those laws are suspended in this situation. And something comes forward called the law of leveret marriage. The word lever means husband's brother, and that's, that's the law that comes into play. And it's not only not forbidden, but it's actively encouraged. It's a sacred duty for the brother to marry his uh, brother's widow. Are you still with me? It's a bit confusing. Um, in order to keep the inheritance in the firstborn's family line. So any child, if uh, when the second son Onan marries... Um, Tamar, any child of that union would be considered to be Ur's son and would take the majority of the inheritance. Um, Onan's Judah's second son sinned against the Lord. We're told very graphically how he did. Um, uh, slide three, I think we've got. Yes, Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death also. Why is it such a sin? Well, firstly, he was preventing her from raising sons that could support her in her widowhood, as I said. He was preventing her from receiving the inheritance due to her. Um, even if the child was a girl, she would still inherit, um, inherit the firstborn portion. Um, but she would then have to remain restricted to marrying within her clan so that the land doesn't pass to somebody else's clan. Very strict rules. Being one of three children, Onan, that meant that Onan's share um, would be the inheritance would be divided into four. Onan's share would be a quarter. Shalar's share would be a quarter. And um, Tamar's share for her sons and daughters would be a half. So basically what Onan did was through greed. He didn't want that portion. He knew the ch children raised would not be considered his. That inheritance would go to his brother's wife and her children, and not to him. 
Thirdly, he was condemning her in the eyes of others because childlessness was then considered to be a curse from the Lord. It was a massive humiliation for her. But I think that the biggest deal was number four. Tamar is one of four women in the genealogy of Jesus. So it's patently obvious that God intended her to have children. So what Onan was doing was thwarting or trying to thwart God's plan for Tamar. Judah, having lost two of his sons, is very worried about losing the third. As I said earlier, um, a boy could be betrothed from the age of 13. If his son was younger than that, then the father was permitted to perform the leveret marriage himself. It all sounds very incestuous, doesn't it? Um, So Judah would have been permitted to marry Tamar in order to beget the son that had the inheritance. But he doesn't want to do that, and he doesn't want to um, betroth Shalar to her either, because he thinks she's had something to do with the death of his two sons. So he sends her back to her father's house to live as a widow, The betrothal doesn't happen. She's forgotten at home, unable to marry elsewhere. This is really important. She's not allowed to marry elsewhere. She's a burden on her father's family. Um, Judah continues to blame her for his son's deaths and no doubt believes he's protecting his remaining son from her. But Tamar knows that her situation is not right. She's the widow of the heir to the leadership of the tribe of Judah. The way she's been treated by the men of that tribe is disrespectful and it's wrong. And she was in such um, shame and humiliation and distress that she was prepared to risk death for, her, for what she considered to be her rights, uh, which actually were her rights. Um, she would have known that the penalty for prostitution was burning by fire. And she would rather risk that than continue as she was. So donning a veil, uh, which coupled with sitting alone in the street, um, this was the entrance to the city gates where all business was conducted. She went to sit there. Women would not normally sit there on their own. Um, And coupled with that, that's tantamount to going out in Baskin fishnets and walking the street at night saying, I'm available. Judah is on his way to Timnah to, um, to shear sheep. But at this point, he's not only lost his two sons, he's also lost his beloved wife. And is he, as depicted in the next slide, is he gripped with grief? Is that why... Tamar's been overlooked by him, or is it just pure fear that he'll end up losing all his children? However it is, he sees Tamar dressed like a prostitute and takes her, offering her the fee of a young goat. And then I ask, why did Tamar ask the things that she did as a pledge? Uh, It's perhaps more puzzling as to why he gave them to her, but... um, 
The seal might have been a ring, um, but more probably would have been a cylinder, like hanging on the um, staff on the left there, with a cord through it. And this was what he would use as the leader to seal documents. Um, and the cord would be long enough to hang round his neck so that he could just pick it up and roll it over the wax. And that would say, this is, this is Judah's document. It was a really important item. Um, the staff wasn't just any old stick. It was more like a scepter. I, I keep thinking about Gandalf's staff, you know, you shall not pass. Um, it would have been elaborately carved, probably by Judah himself, with the names of his forebears. So it would have been a means of identification, much as a passport or a driving license is for us. That would say, this man is who he says he is. So those things were really, really um, valuable things to Judah. No value to Tamar, but they were really valuable things for Judah to give as a pledge. Um, there is a thought in um, the Jewish school of thinking that says he was, abs he was smashed. You know, he'd been sheep shearing or he was going sheep shearing with his mates and he, he, that's the only excuse that he, that, to give him that he... I don't know whether I buy into that, but that's one of the um, trains of thought. Perhaps it's all he had with him. Who knows? Um... Let me see. Yeah, so Tamar in her wisdom foresees that any pregnancy that comes from her union with Judah may get her into serious trouble. So she has the wisdom to ask for, um, to, to, to ask for insurance, basically. That's what she's doing. And when he finally sees his own ID in Tamar's hands, um, Judah has to admit that she is in the right So what can we learn from this in our own lives? Well, the first thing that occurred to me is that being godly women doesn't mean we have to lie down and accept injustice against us. Um, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be treated as if we're of no account. Yes, we need to be humble and we need to be righteous, but righteousness goes two ways. You know, what was done to... Tamar was unjust. So she was standing up for justice. When we're mistreated with the Lord's guidance, we can find means to redress that. She knew what was due to her and her children. She could have stayed meekly in her father's house and just let it wash over her. But rather than that, she took this huge risk. And the Bible doesn't actually say, but I'm convinced that Tamar prayed to God and asked him what she should do, and then was obedient. Because she couldn't possibly know that Judah would be the man to pick her up. There would have been other men around. It wasn't a regular thing in that place. We're told in the Bible there were no street women there in that place. How did she know that another man wouldn't come along and, and abuse her? I'm certain that she was doing what God told her to do, that if Judah wouldn't grant her the security of his son in marriage, then God was insisting that he had to perform that duty himself. The second thing I thought was, 
that sometimes what God asks us to do might not look um, conventional or pretty. And what, the person that came to mind was Jackie Pullinger, who was called by God as a missionary. She tried to join uh, missionary organizations, but they didn't want her. Following a dream she had, she went to Hong Kong on her own with no support, knowing no one, and with only a few pounds in her pocket. From there, she got a job in the Kowloon area of Hong Kong, which was unpoliced and notorious for triad gang activity, drugs, and other corruption. She stayed there alone, and eventually she established a very successful youth center to help addicts and those on the streets. And you can read the story in Chasing the Dragon. It is actually a fascinating story. And the one thing I remember, I've read it a long time ago, the one thing I remember from that is um, she'd gone outside the walled city where she lived. She'd gone outside to have dinner with a pastor and his wife. And when she came back, walking through the gates of the walled city, she said her heart just lifted, just lifted in this terrible place because it's, she was there because God had placed her there. You know, it may not look like anything nice. And in, in a, a very much smaller way, sometimes I get scripts and jobs that I have no idea before I get them what they're going to be like, what the people are going to be like. Sometimes they're really not pleasant. If you saw some of the scripts I get, Oh, you think, where are these, chill, these young kids' minds to write such stuff? Um, but I have to trust that God knows the jobs he wants me to do to take the light of Jesus into a dark place. So sometimes what God asks us to do isn't necessarily what church might approve of, if, if, you, if you get my drift. Thirdly, it pays to have a certain amount of worldly wisdom. Tamar had learned that Judah could be a bit lax in keeping his promises and doing what he should do. So she made sure that she had something to prove that what she did to him was right in the sight of God. The Bible does tell us we need worldly wisdom as well as godly wisdom. I'm very sorry about putting the, these so small um, Matthew 10:16 says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Um, most of you know I had to cancel our holiday recently because of COVID. Um, I, I got COVID. Um, and we asked for the flights to be refunded. And the first thing they asked us for was some kind of proof that I'd had a positive test. And I was so ill on the day I was taking the test. I didn't photograph it. It was, a, um, it was a lateral flow. It wasn't a PCR, so I've got no official. The only thing we did was on that day, we um, uploaded the results to the Zoe COVID app. And fortunately, they have accepted the screenshot of that as proof <laughs> that I tested positive. So, you know, it pays to have worldly wisdom. People out there lie. Why somebody would lie about wanting to, not wanting to go on holiday, I don't know. But people out there tell lies. And why should people accept our word knowing that we don't? Why should they accept our word? They've got 
all they've got is the track rec record they've got from people out in the world who think that lying is fine. Um, so it's wise to have um, a bit of worldly wisdom as well as godly wisdom. We shouldn't be too trusting or assume that people are going to keep their word. Fourthly, that even if our life doesn't turn out the way we expected, if we have trouble and do what is wrong in the eyes of society, and if we are considered a pariah, God still has a plan and a purpose for each of us. Tamar did not know that she was going to be in the genealogy of Jesus. But she was part of his master plan, and she had righteousness on her side. God was able to use her faithfulness, her boldness, and her courage to help bring about our salvation. So that's all I've got to say on that. I'm just going to pray now. I didn't write any questions. I think what would be nice is if you just talked about whatever struck you from the talk, if anything did. If not, just have a nice old gossip. Okay. I'm just going to pray for you now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in, throughout the Bible there are women that you used, um, women of righteousness, courage, and faith. There are so many. We only have to look for them. We thank you that they can be examples to us in our faith. And I pray that you will help each of us now to hear your voice, to apply your word to our lives, and to know that you love us and have a purpose for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.